Welcome to Level Up Your Pharmacy Practice, a podcast you can tune into each week to learn about best practices, new technologies, and staffing resources to level up your pharmacy practice. New episodes drop every Friday morning on the CE Impact Podcast. You can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. In this week's episode, the great COVID debate, pharmacist Jake Galdo and pharmacist attorney David Rushwood partner to review a series of hypothetical scenarios to help you handle cases where law and care may not always align. They'll take turns discussing both the regulatory versus clinical context to each scenario so you can apply your clinical and legal decision-making process to practice. Let's go now to our hypothetical scenarios where Jake and I together are going to, he's going to start out with the, by reading the scenario and then provide the clinical practice perspective and I'll provide the regulatory perspective. So our first hypothetical scenario is this one. A pregnant pharmacist refuses to be vaccinated despite mandates from the state and from the pharmacy. And so we're going to talk about from what, how would we triage this? What would we do? What's the right thing to do from a practice perspective and a regulatory perspective? And so, uh, David, I think usually I start, but did you want to start this one or you want me to go first? Oh, I'll go ahead and start. I'll paint a target on my chest and say, from a regulatory perspective, there's simply no way that this pharmacist, regardless of her pregnancy condition, can be employed at a pharmacy where there is contact with other health professionals and with patients. And she has no right to say, uh, I refuse to be vaccinated and I want to continue to be employed as a pharmacist. So I think from a practice perspective, I look at this as an opportunity to address vaccine hesitancy. There's a great opportunity to talk to someone uh, that might not be vaccinated, that is clearly not vaccinated right now, and reemphasize why they should be vaccinated. You know, this is the, the ability to say, hey, pregnancy is a high-risk condition for, for COVID-19. Let's get vaccinated. The vaccines are safe and indicated for pregnancy. Let's recommend them. Uh, there's a lot of data to support it. So, you know, from a practice perspective, I want to be able to address the vaccine hesitancy and say, you know, if you're saying no to being vaccinated, what can we do to help you understand the data to, to make that most informed choice? Uh, so I think that's where we differ a little bit. Uh, you're, you're throwing down the law, David, saying, nope, not in front of patient care. And I'm saying, what can we do to help them uh, be vaccinated? Uh, and then the other thing from a practice is, how do we, to your point, maybe get them where they're in an environment where they're not in front of patients? where they're not near coworkers such that they would not uh, be exposed or exposing others to the virus. Perfect, so actually we're gonna jump to the next hypothetical scenario. Uh, this is a fun one, this is close to our heart. This is something that we've seen in practice. This is something that I was asked about recently. So a pharmacist has become burned out from the long hours, stress of the pandemic and staffing shortages. The pharmacist administered the J&J COVID-19 vaccine to a patient at closing. So you close at six, patient comes in at 9, 5.59, says, I need the vaccine, I need the vaccine. And even though it's been a long day, we say, you know what? You wanna help the person in front of you, let's vaccinate them. But because this is gonna take some time and if you gotta wait, I'm gonna vaccinate them now and then I'm gonna do all the billing. So while you're billing after hours, a DOR, Drug Utilization Review, shows up that says, do not mix vaccines. The pharmacist refused to do further vaccines in the current conditions out of concern for the patient welfare. The pharmacist has realized 
that they gave a COVID, a, a J&J vaccine to a patient that, based on the DOR, had a previous vaccination. So, David, what are we doing here from a regulatory perspective? Well, I'm pretty sympathetic with this pharmacist. The pharmacist made a mistake. We all make mistakes. The pharmacist says, I just don't think I can continue practicing pharmacy within this environment with the long hours, the stress of the pandemic, the staffing shortage we've experienced. And he's saying, I think what this pharmacist, I say he, he or she is saying is we need to take a bit of a time out here. This seems to me a lot like the Toyota production system where they have a red rope where anyone in the production line can pull the red rope and say, not I feel that we are doing things wrong, but I don't feel comfortable that we're doing everything right. And it may be dangerous doing things the way we are doing them. So I hope that this pharmacist is saying, I need some help here. We need to talk. We need to figure this out. And from a regulatory perspective, I'm very supportive of pharmacists anytime they say, I think my system of pharmacy practice is potentially dangerous to patients. It might violate regulations. It might lead to legal liability. We need to stop and talk and figure out how we can do this well, rather than perhaps setting me up to make mistakes. So what I'm hearing you say, David, is from a regulatory perspective, we need to put red ropes in every single pharmacy so we can pull that lever when needed. Absolutely. Just the way the pilot, any time, the captain on an air, airplane goes through a checklist before every flight. And if the captain isn't comfortable with the checklist, isn't comfortable that that flight can fly safely, the captain can say, I'm canceling this flight. And there are a lot of people who are going to be upset when that happens, including management. But the captain is in charge. I think the pharmacist is in charge at the pharmacy as well and can say, unless I am certain that we're doing things safely, that we can avoid mistakes, then I'm going to have to cancel what we're doing. We need to talk about how to make this a safe system. Well, and I think that's what's interesting about this case is that we're burned out. It's end of the hour. You just want to go home, but you want to help the person in front of you. So you vaccinate and then deal with the paperwork. And so what you're saying about the operations and their checklist, this was clearly a case where we didn't follow our checklist. So from a clinical perspective, we want to have sympathy, but it's also follow the guidelines, follow the checklist, follow the steps in front of you, double check your state registration for immunization history, double check and try to bill because that gives you a DUR from a, from a managed care perspective to support you. So I think that you know, our takeaways on this one are when in doubt, pull the red lever, pull the red rope, and also follow our uh, take the red pill that's coming out new matrix movies in, in December. Uh, but use the red thingy in the pharmacy to, to stop operations, to slow down, and then assess and say, what are my checklists and have I followed them and go back to them? So I think that's a good foundation to, to stay on. Uh, so if we go to the next hypothetical scenario, we see here that uh, we have a pharmacist that decided to take a break when COVID immunizations began saying, you know, I've heard that the vaccine is worse than the disease and I just don't want to do harm to patients. Pharmacist is now requesting a return to work and is claiming a religious exemption from administering immunizations. 
I can kind of take first pass on this one, uh, David, and say from a practice perspective, you know, I want everybody on our team to be supporting the vaccine. I want all of us to be addressing vaccine hesitancy. I want all of us to be encouraging it. And I want all of us vaccinated. Uh, when we don't have someone supporting us from a team, I'm going to be worried about them and, and mixed messages that they might be sharing with our patients. And I'm going to be concerned about them coming to work and maybe not providing evidence-based care. So I have some some concerns about this this individual jumping back on our, our ship and the care that we provide. What do you think from a regulatory perspective? Well, I share those concerns. I do think because we have freedom of religion in this country, and even though this seems to be a non-authentic religious exemption claim, we need to talk with this pharmacist and find out what is the nature of the religious exemption. All of us who have religious beliefs, I include myself in that number, respect others who have religious beliefs, even though they are not the same as mine. And we would like to try to find out, is there some way we could accommodate this religious belief without causing any sort of increased risk for others? My suspicion, based on the way this scenario has been designed, is that this is an inauthentic belief. But the only way you could find that out would be by talking. And what the law requires is that that conversation occur, that the management and the pharmacist discuss the nature of this religious belief that's being asserted. Simply because it's being asserted doesn't mean it's self-authenticating. Religious beliefs must be justified. So if a pharmacist refuses to have that conversation, then there is no religious exemption. I really like that because, you know, what you're really kind of pointing out is that we need additional context. We just can't say that's it. We dive deeper. And it's almost like when, when a patient says, I don't want to get uh, vaccinated, we, from a clinical perspective, try to, to do motivational interviewing. We get more information. We provide more context. And we do the same from a regulatory perspective in this case. Uh, maybe we go to the next one. All right, so this is a fun one. I got a, a text on a Sunday afternoon, which was actually this case. Uh, so a new patient comes into the pharmacy and states that they previously received the CHAD OX1 and COVID-19. So that is our AstraZeneca adenovirus uh, COVID-19 vaccine in the United Kingdom. And they're now here in your pharmacy, ready to get a dose of the BNT162B2, so our Pfizer vaccine now. So in this case, from a, from a clinical perspective, this individual is following UK guidance, Germany guidance, and they're doing evidence-based care from that Lancet article that we cited earlier in today's presentation. So we have someone that is saying, please let me finish my vaccine series. I started international and I'm here in the States now to wrap it all up. And here's the citation. So from a, from a clinical perspective, this kind of makes sense. Uh, David, what's your opinion on a, on a regulatory side? Yeah, from the regulatory side, I say take that Lancet article and tear it up and throw it away. It violates the guidelines. You don't want to have anything to do with this. The legal responsibility is to follow the guidelines. There's a contractual responsibility with the government, with the people who are paying for this to follow the guidelines. Don't even touch this from a regulatory perspective. Okay. So, so I think this is really exciting. So to point out to everybody, we've really highlighted something that has a differing clinical versus regulatory perspective. And there's nothing 
inherently wrong with that, because, again, this is a debate of a hypothetical scenario, but this does differ. And so this is where we have to think about the patient in front of us and, and you know, the rules and regs that provide our authority to provide the care that we do. So let's change this scenario a little bit as we go into hypothetical scenario five. And so in hypothetical scenario five, we see that you have a regular patient, somebody that's been at your pharmacy for decades, and they present a prescription. And I use this in quotes because it's on a prescription pad, but it's not written like a prescription. It's just on a prescription pad. And it states the following. Patient has previously received the J&J COVID vaccine. Unfortunately, she was a chemotherapy patient at the time. She has no measurable antibodies. I have recommended that she be vaccinated as if she has never been vaccinated before. She should receive two doses of either Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, thank you. David, this one's different from the last one. We now have a prescription, if you will. Does this change the regulatory perspective? For, for my perspective, it does. I have a lot more sympathy with this scenario. We have a medical colleague who is making a recommendation, even a request in consultation. I, I would suggest continuing that consultation by contacting the other medical healthcare professional and verifying the uh, all of the information. And under circumstances like this, it matters far less to me what the guidelines are because you have a patient, another healthcare professional, a pharmacist who is a healthcare professional, perhaps on the same wavelength deciding what's in the best interest. And I think that this is far less risky from a regulatory perspective if it were done as requested. Awesome. See, and what's interesting is from the clinical perspective, I would argue we have less data to support this, right? A lot of our trials, a lot of our data that says this vaccine works have been powered and analyzed to outcomes, hospitalizations, death. We're looking at antibody levels. That's not necessarily what the data is reflecting in how the recommendations go. But to your point, we want to provide care to that patient in front of us. And so I think for, for this scenario, we want to get as close to the letter of the law as possible. So instead of having a prescription, which is just this note, I'd want the doctor to give me a legitimate prescription, write an order for Pfizer. That one actually is FDA approved. So give me an order for it. And this information is actually additional notes and documents that's attached to the prescription. And I love your point about calling the provider and getting some tighter levels. Let's get those labs and let's put that with it. So let's document everything together. And similar to, to a previous uh, clinical versus regulatory debate that you and I had, you talked about sharing with the patient the information, getting them to attest and sign it. And I think that this would be another scenario that I would kind of listen to you in, in that regard and say, hey, here's the information in front of us. This is what we're doing. Can you attest and sign and acknowledge this is how we're providing care? So our next, so our second to last uh, uh, scenario that we see here is that a pharmacy staff has all young children aged five to seven. And as we recall, there are no currently authorized or approved uh, vaccines in the U.S. for that age range. We're hearing that it's going to be Thanksgiving or a little bit after from a news report earlier today uh, for an update on timeline on that one. The staff conduct their own research because we even saw news reports last week talking about this, and they've concluded that the mRNA vaccines are safe for, some, for young children. 
They've considered using leftover doses of vaccines that were going to go to waste anyways for their own children, as opposed to wasting these valuable doses. Uh, David, you want to take a stab at this one first? Okay. Well, first of all, I hate the optics of this. I just hate the idea that we are treating our children in a favorable way and we're not treating other people's children in an equally as favorable way. If you want to get sued, then the best way to do that is to make people angry with you about the fairness of what you're doing. So I think that it's a mistake to do this from that perspective. In addition, it's, it violates the guidelines. And I continue to think that violating guidelines, unless there is a very compelling reason to do so, which I don't see in this scenario, is the wrong thing to do. So I would say, from a regulatory perspective, the right thing to do is to not do this. And, you know, from a, from a clinical perspective, I would agree as of right now. Because even when we hear about the data that's coming out that says, you know, Pfizer came out with data last week that said, we have great data, let's do it. I haven't read it. I haven't seen it. And so when we say that we've conducted our own research for evidence-based care, is that a Google search? <laughs> or did we actually pull the literature? You know, uh, we had a podcast earlier today talking about the science of masks uh, with, a, with a friend and colleague, Michael Hogue. And I think he said on the podcast, a quote, uh, social media is not uh, science. And so... When we say that we've conducted our own research, that is not saying I've gone to Google, I read the news reports that said Pfizer's got some data. So if we're going to kind of go a little rogue, if we will, I want to read the evidence. You know, it's almost like that, that Lancet article, I read the evidence, and I feel a little bit stronger about going with something like that because there's evidence to support it, and we don't have the evidence available to us right now for this. And, and I think the other aspect of it that, that we haven't really talked about is we are conditionally uh, approved or we're, we're conditionally uh, set up to assume that everything is safe. We are only interacting with drugs that are approved. So we are intrinsically biased to assume drugs work. But there are a lot of drugs that fail and a lot of drugs that are not approved. And so I think that even though there might be some efficacy and we say, oh, it's good for the efficacy, we don't know the side effects. And that's what we really need to iron out. And that's what we often iron out in this regulatory process. So we can jump to our last uh, scenario. And so here we have our neighbor, a physician. They've been caring for uh, their elderly parents and children as a full-time job during the pandemic. They were fully vaccinated back in January. So now it has been a solid eight months since full vaccination. Uh, and comes into the pharmacy for a booster off of the mRNA-1793. This is our Moderna vaccine. So they're requesting a booster on Moderna, and we know that they're not immunocompromised. And so from a clinical perspective, this is a wait and see. As we talked about at the beginning, as you have that slide with that table with the recommendations, additional doses are recommended for immunocompromised. Your neighbor is not immunocompromised, so no additional dose for them. And Moderna is not authorized for a booster, so they should not be getting a booster on Moderna. Uh, David, any other perspectives on that? Well, yeah, I have a contrary perspective, actually. And it's I'm the guy who's saying, follow the guidelines, follow the guidelines, follow the guidelines, don't violate the guidelines. 
In this situation, I say the regulatory risk is very low. This is a person who my guess is understands quite well the risk to which she is being subjected, the risk to others that might exist if she doesn't have this booster. And I would say, go ahead and administer this based on her request, given the circumstances that she, that she describes. Awesome. So I think that this is ending our seven scenarios. We're gonna open it up for Q&A in a moment, but I think uh, what we hope people kind of take away from this presentation is that it's not black and white right now. The, the literature, the guidelines are constantly evolving. And the best thing that we can do is stay up to date with them and really consider every time you have a patient in front of you, what are my legal considerations and what are the uh, regulatory considerations and how do I mirror or match or balance those two to provide the best care in front of us. Uh, so with that, David, thank you again for, for joining us tonight. Thanks for listening then. This week's episode was an excerpt from a CE Impact CE course, The Great COVID Debate. If you would like access to the full CE, go check out the show notes below. <laughs>